so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I've been saying several weeks in a row now, the green is uh, uh, the symbol that we have in ordinary time. It's a symbol of the growth that we have in God's kingdom. The idea is that we want to grow up as disciples of Jesus, and that takes uh, a regular uh, attentiveness to a rule of life and the teachings of Jesus. And we have Luke as our guide this year, and so we've been following along in the gospel of Luke, learning to keep in step with Jesus. In fact, in chapter 9, the key word is once the disciples get clear about who Jesus is, he says, now that you know who I am, follow me. Keep in step with me. Follow me. That's what we're learning to do. And as I shared last week, this, this word, this term, disciple, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Uh, he has to broaden our understanding of what it means. And today on this holiday weekend, this July 4th weekend, I want to talk with you about a disciple of Jesus Christ's understanding of freedom. Freedom. I am so incredibly thankful for the country that I was born in and live in. Um, we are blessed in so many ways in the United States, and I think it is a really good thing when Christians are thankful citizens of the country that is their heartland, their own tribe, their own country. I think it's a good thing when Christians are thankful citizens. I love it when I meet people from other countries. I walked into a store in Argyle recently and uh, began chatting it up with the new owner, and I asked him where he was from because he was clearly not from the U.S., and he told me he was from Jordan. And within seconds, I said, well, I've been to Israel, I've been to Egypt, but I've never been to Jordan. And he said, oh, you, you have to go. And just, I mean, he almost came across the counter in such excitement to tell me about the food and the places, and the music, and oh, you have to go. It's like he wanted me to get on a plane with him that moment and go to Jordan. I think this is a beautiful thing. To be thankful, to be appreciative of your culture, your own heartland. I have a Lebanese friend that whenever I talk to her, she can't help but talk about the joy of Lebanese food. Um, Olu, i calling him out. If Olu has shared some of the treats from his native Nigeria, and when he gives it to me, he, like, he wants me to taste them right in front of him. This is a good thing. To have this appreciation of one's culture, one's story, one's place, this is all good. But, and some of you knew there was going to be a but, it's a bad thing when Christians begin to make their national identity more primary than or equal to their identity in Christ as if the story of Jesus gets somehow tied up with the story of one nation state. This is a problem. When a flag gets confused with the eternal faith that we have in Christ, bad things happen. Um, just so that you know, I'm not just talking about an, an American problem, although it is an American problem. Uh, when, when a flag gets confused with one's identity and faith, bad things happen. Things like what happened in Rwanda a while back, where Hutus that were Christian and Tutsis that were Christian began killing one another in the name of faith and sort of identity politics. 
When we fail to differentiate our national story from the story of Christ, I want you to know we end up following another gospel, a strange gospel that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, so every disciple in every age in every culture has to do the work of saying, hey, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ connect with my culture and story? And where does it conflict? And then that disciple has to say, and now where are my loyalties? Where are my loyalties? Well, one of the ways in which you and I are challenged as disciples, modern disciples in the 21st century in this nation that we live in is we're challenged by our understanding of freedom. I wanna chat with you today about a disciple's understanding of freedom. Uh, Every 4th of July weekend, there are a number of just wonderful, nostalgic things that we do. These are rituals. Every culture has rituals. Every culture has symbols. Every culture has routines. And whenever the 4th of July weekend comes along, now I love to barbecue. So you can bet we're going to, I've already had like five amazing barbecue conversations before the church uh, service started. And um, barbecue is a part of it. As a kid, I go back to being sunburned, snow cone syrup all over my face and hands, uh, sitting on the back of a truck in West Texas somewhere, watching fireworks, I'm probably barefoot, and Lee Greenwood is on full blast, right? This kind of nostalgia is part of, every culture has things like this. And that song, I, I remember we would sort of blare it in my household, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm Gosh, I, for, I forgot, What's, what is the word? Yeah, free. I want to talk to you about freedom, about a disciple of Jesus' understanding of freedom. It's different. It's different. It's not necessarily always in opposition to our understanding, but it's different. Um, the, the great theologian Inigo Montoya said, you keep using that term, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Freedom, it doesn't mean what you and I think it means. I want to invite you to consider a different, richer, more holistic understanding of freedom. See, our national understanding of freedom primarily defines freedom as freedom from some authority. So freedom from. So I am free from somebody telling me, what I can say and cannot say. This is our freedom of speech. And these personal freedoms are freedoms that we treasure and we delight in. But our understanding of freedom in particular can get so small that we only think about it in terms of freedom from. So nobody can tell me what to do because I'm free. A disciple of Jesus has a radically different understanding of freedom. You and I are not just free from, you and I are free now for someone and something. You see, to be set free as a disciple of Jesus is now to be free to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and free to love our neighbor with all that we are. Our freedom in Christ is really different than freedom. It's not just negatively defined freedom from, but now freedom for someone And not only is that freedom for the Lord, but it's for our neighbor. I love what Martin Luther said in his little essay on Christian liberty. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. 
And then he goes on to say, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, and subject to all. See, the scriptures don't leave room for us to leave our understanding of freedom simply at this idea of freedom for. Sure, we treasure these freedom from. We treasure those freedoms, but it's not just that. It goes deeper. It's richer than that. And the reason that this is true is that we know as followers of Christ, I hope you know this, everyone is a slave of someone. Everyone is is proselytizing some ideology. Everyone is a true believer in someone or something. To be set free, to be set free is to know and love your creator, to become a slave of only his. In Luke chapter 10, we're following along Jesus' training of the 12 disciples, learning to to understand what does it mean to be a disciple. And I want to contend there are three freedoms that are here in Luke 10. There's the freedom of serving others. There's the freedom of sharing the gospel. And there's the freedom of what one in our day has called self-forgetfulness. The freedom of serving others, of sharing the gospel, and of self-forgetfulness. Let's start at the beginning. What is the freedom of serving others? You might just put the freedom for ministry. You see, those that are called in by God to him are set free such that they're no longer slaves to self, only focused on on our own needs. The the early church fathers and theologians had this term that I've shared over and over again because I think it's helpful because I think it still defines the human condition today, curvatas, where we're curved in on ourselves. We're literally bit in on ourselves. You know what it's like to have a conversation with somebody who's got a severe case of curvatas? It's not very pleasant because they're only focused on themselves. They're bent in on themselves. This is what sin does. Sin promises you freedom, but it makes you a slave. It bends you in on yourself. And what happens in Christ is we're set free from being solely focused on ourselves because Christ has met every need, every longing. And so we, we begin to stand up straight We begin to not only look up and see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are, and now we see our neighbors in a totally different way. We're no longer slaves to self. We have this freedom for ministry. In chapter 9, what has happened, and we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, is that the the hand-picked apostles, the, the 12, are empowered to go and do ministry in Jesus's name. They're, they're, go, they're sent out to preach. Isn't this interesting? Jesus immediately begins recruiting a team when he starts his ministry. And that starts with the 12. And they're sent out to preach in Jesus' name. That's to persuade. They're sent out to do that. They're sent out to cast out demons, to, to liberate people from slavery. They're sent out to heal, to bring wholeness of life. Those three things are the ministry of Jesus and the 12 apostles are sent out to do that in chapter nine. And if we only had chapter nine and the story kind of ended there, we might think, well, this is only for a select few. You know, the 12, the apostles, the, the, the Navy SEALs, the, the Marines, I don't, whatever you might think of the few, the proud, the clergy. Uh, there was a, a recruitment um, My New Zealand friend calls it an advertisement. I don't know what that is, but there was an advertisement. And it looked like this. Um, What's wrong? You don't have to say it out loud. What's wrong with this image? 
I think this is deeply disturbing. This is what's wrong with the church today. If we only had chapter 9, you could conclude that maybe this has some element of truth, but we don't just have chapter 9. What we have is chapter 10. And what happens in chapter 10 is Jesus now empowers not just 12, but 70, 72. And this is a clear reference to any Jewish reader of the Old Testament to Genesis 10, which was the list of nations at the time after the flood, the table of nations, and how many were there? Around 70. And what Christ is doing is he is empowering not just the few, the proud, the apostles, but he is now calling and equipping every follower of his to go out and be on mission in the world. There is no such thing as the sort of superhero apostle. There are coaches and equippers of all the saints for the mission of God in the world. Every nation is called by God. That's part of what's being said in the 72 being sent out. Every nation is being invited. It tells us at the beginning of our gospel reading that he was sending them out to every place he was about to go. Did you know that included Samaria? That included people that they didn't want, to, they didn't think were in. Uh, Luke continues to do this to us as we read the gospel of Luke. We, we find out that the outsiders are actually being invited in. In fact, the whole thing is sort of turned inside out on us and they go to places like Samaria. They go to places that are Jewish towns. They go everywhere that Jesus is about to go, Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 10. Every nation is called by God, but more importantly, I want you to see this, every nation is sent. Every disciple is sent. You see, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, you and I don't just get our own inner healing to keep it to ourselves. We are called by God now to go out into the world and to be on mission. If you don't know this pattern, it's a very biblical pattern. God calls someone in and then he sends that person out. He calls Abraham in. And what does he tell to Abraham? I'm gonna bless you and then I'm gonna make you to be a blessing. I'm gonna send you out. He calls Moses in and then he sends Moses to Pharaoh. A few weeks ago, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Isaiah 6, he calls Isaiah in. The deepest part of Isaiah's brokenness is met by the grace of God. And Isaiah experiences healing that was so life-changing. And, and, and right on the, the cusp of that inner personal life change, Isaiah then begins to say, I want to go for you and with you into the world on mission. You're called in by God if you're a disciple. It's really amazing. It's really personal. But then you are sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus as public reality, as public truth, not just a private value. He calls every disciple. He empowers every disciple. He sends every disciple Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for we are his God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you know that this means that you and me have, have a very specific calling on our lives, that there are certain people whose hands only you are called to hold? There are certain wrongs that you were called to right. There are certain demons that you were called to cast out. 
do you know that you're called to be on mission? Not just uh, the few, the proud, the apostles, not just those that are like really serious about their faith, but like if you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. You are sent on mission. Have you discovered this freedom for ministry? Part of what this means in North Texas is that if you're single, you no longer live for yourself. Part of what this means is that if you're married and you have children, your ultimate goal in life is not to ensure the, the worldly success of the next generation. Part of what this means is that you are no longer bent in on yourselves, curved in on yourselves. You're now set free for ministry. We have a mission, and we're going to see next week. Um, some of you are going, gosh, is he going like, to make us go knock on doors today in our, in our master plan communities? There are times where we have thought what it means to be sent means one thing. It's actually, it's never just one thing, but part of what it means in every age and every culture, when Father David is back from vacation next week, you're gonna hear it looks like the Samaritan who knows how to be a neighbor to the one who has, has been you know, left for dead. It means neighboring. And neighboring, neighboring is something that each and every one of us are uniquely equipped and called to do in, in a special way. I cook barbecue for my neighbors. Um, it's, it's a way for me to just be a friend to them. Um, it's a way for me to spend money at Costco that my wife wouldn't want me to spend and justify it. No. We're set free for ministry. Secondly, um, we're set free to share the gospel. Okay, so we're set free for ministry. We're no longer slaves to self. But secondly, we're set free to share the gospel. Now, why would I talk about this as a freedom? Well, it's not, it's not the easiest thing in the world to proclaim as public truth the gospel of Jesus in your own culture. I, I was telling somebody before the service that I make the mistake often of thinking, well, this is easy for them because, you know, they were in like this like really religious culture and... So they, they could go out and go door to door, and this was probably easy for them. It wasn't easy for them. If you heard Paul say in the Galatians reading today, at the end of Galatians 6, he actually said, I've, I've been crucified to the world. Every disciple has to come to the place where you have so identified with Jesus Christ as your primary identity that even proclaiming and sharing the gospel will at times put you at odd with your nation's flag. It will at times put you at odds with your neighbors. You gotta know for, uh, let's just, we could pick a number of recipient cultures in this first century, but for Peter to go into the household of a faithful Jewish family and say, you know, for centuries, we've been waiting on the Messiah. And I gotta tell you, he's here. His name is Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Joseph and Mary's son. Um, Here's the gospel story of him being the fulfillment of all the law. You gotta know this, this caused Peter to get a little nervous. This wasn't like the most comfortable thing he could have imagined doing with his, his travels from place to place. And of course, this would have been true in places like Samaria. Don't overlook that fact, but here's what happens. We are set free to talk freely in the public square about Jesus as Lord of all. Um, years ago, uh, Father Adam Jameson, who leads Hope Ignited, uh, joked with us that to say 
Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. Is an oxymoron. These things don't go together. What I'm saying to you, North Texas and North Americans, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a personal value. He is a public reality to proclaim. You and I have been overwhelmed by the culture that we live in, which one might say is religious pluralism. Um, even if you're not, uh, uh, this is not like your main cup of tea to talk about philosophy and different you know, theories of, of public life. Hang with me just for a second, just briefly to say, religious pluralism basically argues that there is no one religion that can claim to be the fullness of truth. And so therefore, we have a pluralistic society where all religions are valued. And I wanna tell you that um, this probably is uh, an arrangement that ensures uh, when there's a certain level of religious tolerance and uh, a certain level of care given to other narratives, I get that that's, that, that's a beautiful thing. Um, if you and I had grown up in the Middle East, we would value it more than we do, where all they've known has sort of been civil war and bloodshed over, over grand narratives, over meta-narratives. So while it might be good for a democratic society to promote religious pluralism, part of what's happened is that the effect has been Christians are no longer properly confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ as not only a personal value, but a public truth. Here's a little chart that I find helpful. We've, we've accepted in this age of pluralism the separation of public and private. So, you know, there's public facts but there's personal values. There's, there's public, in the public square, there's reason, but in the personal sphere, we, we have faith. This is something in our culture that, that we've almost been discipled into believing that you can truly separate public from private. So fact from value, reason from faith, politics from religion, the state from the church. I wanna tell you, it's, it's way messier than that. Uh, one of the things that this leads Christians to do is to say things like, well, Jesus is Lord of all, but that's just my personal opinion. Now, we don't have time to get into all this because there are abuses on every extreme of Christians doing this. There are the abuse, the, 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 the brokenness of timidity and like just, you know, oh, shucks, I guess we're gonna go and share the gospel in the public square and it's gonna be hard and nobody might believe us. And there's that kind of timidity and just, you know. And then there's, there's this arrogant, dominant, coercive, like, you know, sign waving, we have the truth and nobody else does. And the church seems to be kind of stuck in between these two extremes. What I see in the earliest of witnesses of God's kingdom was a proper confidence. And I wanna tell you that proper confidence is beautifully mixed with humility. Are you set free to share the gospel? Or are you too worried about what your neighbors or coworkers might think? Are you set free to share the gospel? That's one of the freedoms is that we're, we're set free for mission, we're set free to share the gospel. We're, we're no longer totally preoccupied with ourselves. This is why the early apostles wrote about like, hey, I'm, I'm considered a fool by the Greeks. I'm a stumbling block to the Jews. I, I'm like this third culture person that nobody really knows what to do with. That's the way our culture should feel about us, the church. 
to say Jesus is Lord, it's not just a private value. It's personal, sure, but it has public intent. I'm going to skip to the end of this quote for the sake of time, but one of my heroes, I do think he had sort of a Superman t-shirt on underneath, was this missionary to India. He spent 40 years on mission in India, sharing the gospel to another culture. His name's Leslie Newbigin. He's got an odd British name. Um, but he points out this truth, and I'm just going to jump down to the last sentence that's in italics. The church could have escaped persecution by the Roman Empire if it had been content to be treated as what he called a private cult. If the church of Jesus Christ back in the day in the Roman Empire would have been content to say, listen, um, this is just our personal values. You just kind of leave us alone. Jesus is Lord, but that's just our personal opinion. Uh, they could have they could have escaped some, if not most, of the persecution that they encountered. But to say Jesus is Lord, to say Jesus is Lord, that is provocative, prophetic, and those are fighting words if Caesar is understood to be Lord. Where are your loyalties, disciple of Jesus? As we celebrate this weekend a national story, which I hope you do. I hope you also are challenged to understand a new understanding of freedom, that you're set free for mission. You're set free to share the gospel in this pluralistic age of ours. And then lastly, you are set free to be self-forgetful. I know that's kind of a funny way to say it, um, but the gospel of Jesus sets sons and daughters free to no longer be so focused on themselves. We can be self-forgetful. In contrast, I said to the slavery of external affirmation, of constantly needing others to tell you that you're doing a great job, that they like you, that you're good. This is, this is the broken cup. If you've been at resurrection very long, it's an, it's an analogy we use often is that that uh, it, when my cup is wounded or broken, I can't hold the gospel story in it. And so I just go around asking, you know, would, you, would you put something in my cup? Would you put something? I don't know who I am. I don't know if I really matter. Would you put something in my cup? You have friends and family that are like this at the dinner table. It's exhausting. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ sets you free to be self-forgetful. It's often attributed to C.S. Lewis by Rick Warren. But actually, it's a Rick Warren quote adapted by C.S. Lewis, and here's what it says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is a really wise statement. Uh, he attributed it to Lewis, but Lewis's quote is a little different. I don't have it up on the screen. But he says, if you were to imagine meeting a really humble person, he will not be what most people call humble, Lewis writes. He will not be some sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The gospel of Jesus sets you free to not be so focused on self. It allows you to enter into mission and ministry and neighboring without a preoccupation of needing something in return from those you're sent to. That's what the gospel does. Now, 
where in the world am I getting this and why am I talking about this from Luke chapter 10? Well, look it down at verse 20. They come back and they're fairly proud of themselves. We went out and did this, Jesus, and guess what happened? The demons fled. Look at what we did. Look at the impact we had. It's interesting how quickly Jesus rebukes them. There are actually really bad motivations for ministry. Did you know that? For mission? Uh, Individuals like pastors or individual disciples can have bad motivations for ministry. Whole churches can have bad motivations for their mission in their county and state and culture. Here's a wrong motivation. The wrong motivation that's called out here is, of of course, we all would get excited about seeing life change in others, but that's not what they're to get excited about. In fact, Jesus immediately, talk about being Lord of all, he like, this is the salt, smelling salt. Like he immediately puts the smelling salt under their nose. As soon as they're all like, guess what happened? You wouldn't believe it, Peter did. And Jesus puts the smelling salt. He says, hey, I saw Satan fall like lightning in heaven. Like, I I understand you thought you saw something really special in Samaria or in Capernaum, but um, I, Lord, creator, uh, I am the center of this story. And when when you see life change in others, it's one thing to celebrate that, but but they're getting excited about themselves. You know, my my jersey, like, you know, that like, like right there. That's what they're doing. And Jesus says, that's not what motivates real mission. That's not the joy that motivates real sentness to our neighbors. Um, Back in the day, if you were a somebody, your name was written. If you were a somebody back in the day, your name was written on the official town roll or roster. Now look at what Jesus says to that first century group of 70. He says, don't rejoice that the demons respond to you. I want you to rejoice. I want your whole motivation to be this. Your name's already written in heaven. It's already done. Like, no matter how it goes on your next little outing on the field, because not all of them are going to be this great, your name's already written. Totally secured. You got nothing to prove. You got nothing to hide. You know what that means? You are now free for mission. That means you can go and risk everything, and it be amazing, and you know that that's not the, that's not the goal. Yeah, that means you can go out and be sent out, and you can risk everything, and it totally bomb and fail, and it won't affect your joy because it's, it's already done. The game's already won. We now get to go. We're, this is real freedom. Real freedom is to know that you can risk everything without your own ego being a part of the story at all. Do you know this level of freedom? North Texas brothers and sisters, do you know the freedom of mission? The freedom of self-forgetfulness? By the way, that little title, self-forgetfulness, and the freedom of self-forgetfulness is the title of a little book based upon a sermon from Timothy Keller. I have multiple copies if you want one. It was a life-changing read for me about a decade ago. This following after Jesus, of being his disciple, as we've learned the last few weeks, we don't get to define what that means. He does. And so, are you using your freedom to serve and bless others? 
Are, are you freed up such that now life is no longer just about you? What does that look like and feel like? We'll see in the coming weeks. I'll tell you, one of the things it means is you start right where you are in small ways, right in the, the reality that God has planted you, and you work the soil right where he's planted you. So the company you're in, the family you're in, the neighborhood you're in, the people in need right around you, this becomes the place of sentness and mission. And Jesus says to us, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's talking about a different understanding of freedom. And so, Heavenly Father, would you indeed set us free to know and to love you to be sent out on mission by you. Father, I pray for disciples right here of every age, no matter how young, no matter how old, that they would discover or rediscover what it means to be sent as your disciples in the world. By your grace and for your glory, would you do this? In Christ's name, amen. Amen.